Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. Have you heard about the upcoming Unitarian Christian Alliance Conference, or as I like to call it, UCACon? It's going to happen next month from October 15th to the 17th. My guest today is Dr. Dale Tuggy, the chairman of the board of the UCA. Listen in as he discusses what's on the docket for our inaugural UCA conference, as well as a teaser for what he will be saying about John 1 in his presentation. By the way, if any of you Restitutio listeners make it to the conference, stop by and say hello and get your free Restitutio sticker while supplies last. I, I took a shot of the sticker, and it's in the show notes for this episode if you want to see a picture of it. Also, we'll spend some time in this episode talking about the newest UCA publication, a reprint of an interesting book by Thomas Imlin from the year 1702. Dale Tuggy and Keegan Chandler worked hard to modernize the Old English and provide lots of helpful footnotes and include an excellent introduction. So we've got a lot to talk about today. Here now is episode 410, Thomas Imlin and the Unitarian Christian Alliance Conference with Dale Tuggy. Welcome, Dale Tuggy, to Restitutio. So glad to have you today on the show. Thanks for having me, Sean. It's a privilege. Glad you're here. I uh, like to have some some Dale Tuggy time occasionally, you know, at least once a year. And uh, last year we had launched the UCA, the Unitarian Christian Alliance, and we did that whole episode introducing the organization. And uh, I know that. There are always new listeners coming to Restitutio, so maybe you could just briefly tell us about the UCA and the purpose of the UCA, just to get started here. Sure, Sean. Uh, The mission of the UCA is to network, encourage, and educate Unitarian Christian individuals and groups, and to advance the cause of a Unitarian Christian understanding of God and His unique Son. So it's not a church, it's not a denomination, It's basically a parachurch ministry whose mission it is to serve individuals and Unitarian Christian groups. Yep. Uh, I actually remember our initial conversation about the UCA when it was just a concept. We were having burgers at the Atlanta airport. Do you remember that? Mm Mm-hmm. Yep. (laughs) And uh, you were talking about the need for this organization just to help people unite together from different groups and different churches and denominations to have a stronger voice together than what we would have separately. So it's it's exciting to me to be part of it from the, the ground level here. What do you think about over the last year? I mean, this UCA is still brand spanking new, wouldn't you say? Mm-hmm. Has it been what you expected? Yeah, I mean, we're up into, I don't know how many hundreds now. Uh, we've got people in you know more than two dozen countries, I think. And I think the growth is uh, slow and steady. I see new emails come in every other day where somebody has joined up and become a member. And, you know, we know there are a lot more Unitarian Christians than are represented even in our list. You know, I may know that there's a Church of God General Conference Church in this town, and they got 50 or 60 people there, but we have one member. Or there might be a family with five people, and we have one member. But we're really pleased uh, with how it's going so far. And 
we all love this map feature that we've had implemented on our site where you can just look at the globe and you can see these orange dots where all our members are. That's just incredibly encouraging. We're still in the early stages of it. I think in a couple of years, maybe we'll have five or 10 times the members will really be able to be helpful to people in just about any medium-sized city in terms of helping people find fellowship, helping them find a church or a ministry or an online fellowship. So it's going well. People are starting to understand kind of where we fit in, that we're not in competition with the denominations and the churches, but we're just trying to add fuel to the fire, basically. Yeah. To help give them a neutral place where they can influence each other and have a wider influence uh, and where seekers, you know, eventually can find them. There's all kinds of people finding your materials or mine or work from 21st century reformation, places like that, Keegan Chandler's books. And then they're like, okay, great. Now where do we go to church? Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're trying to build that network with enough different kinds of churches where different kinds of people can find a landing place. Yeah. What are you excited about, about the UCA, uh, as far as like where things are at now and where we're headed? Well, a couple of things in particular at the moment. One, I'm just absolutely delighted with the UCA podcast, which is produced by board member Mark Kane. I think it's fantastic. Uh, it's encouraging and very interesting to hear all these different stories from different sorts of people. I think it's really building a sense of community and uh, and a sense of sympathy, you know, for the struggles that people have to go through as they are trying to figure these things out, as they're trying to be faithful uh, to God in their spiritual journey. So I absolutely love that. I'm also right now really excited about the conference. And, you know, as I mentioned, we're not a denomination or church, but we're just trying to, you know, help them basically enable them in their mission. So I'm really pleased to say that for this conference coming up, we've got a number of groups that have chosen to become conference partners. So they've made a contribution. They'll have a table at the conference where they can meet people and explain to people all the amazing things that they're doing And then that money, you know, really offsets the cost for everybody else of the conference and allows us to uh, give some financial aid to people, basically. And uh, just the range of groups is really uh, encouraging to me. I mean, I don't know where else you go to find this mix of people, you know, in one room. And if you're a seeker, I don't know where else you go to be exposed to, you know, this variety of Unitarian Christian uh, ministries. So we have Atlanta Bible College, which is run by the Church of God General Conference, which is my denomination. Uh, We've got Allegiance to the King. We've got Williamsburg Christadelphian Foundation, which looks very interesting. Spirit and Truth. A lot of people know them as the maker of, you know, biblicalunitarian.com. They do lots of things. Uh, Living Hope International Ministries. Oh, yeah. And uh, one that I hadn't known about before uh, called IntegritySyndicate.com. So, you know, I'm looking forward to just the kind of mutual encouragement, you know, maybe in some sense cross-pollination that will come about. And again, just helping Unitarian Christians have somewhere to land. As this message gets out more, we're getting people who used to be Jehovah's Witnesses or used to be Oneness, Pentecostals or who used to be Trinitarians. And 
you know, I can't imagine they're all going to agree about all the different things that divide different Unitarian groups. And so, you know, we want them to find their home. We don't tell groups what's important. We don't tell them what they should consider essential, who they should fellowship with. We have zero control. We're just enablers. We're cheerleaders, you know. And we would much rather uh, see people find uh, fellowship and a further walk with Christ uh, in some group that, you know, maybe we slightly disagree with as individuals. Rather than becoming agnostics or atheists, we're just kind of wandering in the wilderness, which is really not a good place to be as far as your spiritual life. So anyway, I'm really excited about just that conglomeration of uh, people and ministries coming together. Yeah. Excited about that. Yeah, I'm super excited about it too. And I I think this conference is really just going to be epic and historic. You know, a bunch of people have already signed up and hopefully more will continue to sign up. So I'm I'm definitely excited about it too. I'd like to switch gears just for a minute here and talk about Mm -hmm. this book right here, Thomas Imlin and Humble Inquiry into the Scripture Account of Jesus Christ. Why is this book, do you think, worth resurrecting and publishing for today? Well, I read this book years ago, probably in the early 2000s, and I thought it was really extraordinary, and I thought his story was really extraordinary. I even ended up reprinting volume one of his complete works from 1746 at one point. And I think what's uh, extraordinary about the book are, first of all, his arguments, and second of all, his example. His example, he was a lot like our friend uh, Jeff Dibel in Australia. He was this minister who was a good preacher, who loved people, and the people loved him. And then he started to actually think about these Trinity and Incarnation issues and realized that, hey, the New Testament doesn't support Trinitarian traditions. But, you know, he kind of wanted to keep it on the down low. He's instinctively against controversy and denouncing and grandstanding and all the nonsense that goes on. And so he kind of kept his views on the down on the down low for a while and just preached on practical topics. Um, but then, of course, it eventually came out. Uh, he was rudely, roughly, nastily forced out of his job and had to flee the country. He went from Ireland back to England to kind of let the controversy die down. But eventually he was persuaded to, okay, you need to step up, just lay it on the line, explain why it is you think what you think. And so he did that in his book, An Humble Inquiry. And uh, it's just a great book, and it has a lot of interesting insights on different topics. For instance, the current exalted state that Jesus enjoys now, and you know how he must have a, a high degree of knowledge and power right now to be able to carry out his, his role as head of the church, um, or how Unitarian, Trinitarian arguments relate to Protestant Catholic arguments. That's another interesting thing that he goes into. And uh, he's just very, very plain spoken, very careful in his reasoning. Uh, there's, there's no kind of grandstanding, like he's not interested in condemning everybody else, but he is interested in the end in sticking up for truth and for, you know, trying to be a faithful servant of God and of Jesus and to you know, explain what he thinks the New Testament actually teaches So it's just a really neat little book. Historically, it had a big influence in encouraging the cause of religious tolerance because he went to jail for writing this book. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people 
whether Unitarian or Trinitarian or just agnostics were like, wait a second, do we really want to throw this guy in jail under blasphemy laws? This guy's never blasphemed a day in his life. Even if he had, do we throw people in jail for that? So, you know, thank God uh, people like Jeff Dibel in Australia don't get thrown in jail right. for thinking that the one true God is the father. But that happened to Thomas Emlyn. Uh, and he's just his example throughout is just very godly and Christ-like and... Uh, it did prick the consciences of people at the time. He was a well-known person in Unitarian Christianity, especially in England and America in the 17, 1800s. Uh, he's been forgotten, but there's not a good reason for it. You know, he's really, really a neat part of our heritage as Unitarian Christians. His book is uh, fairly short as well, uh, which I think is is good for these kinds of books. Uh, to, Absolutely, we, we have some big ones already, some booster size books out there, and I'm, mm-hmm. I think you're still working on your big book, right? Is that something you are my are big yet? Trinity book? Yeah, uh, you know, it's one been, day I going to publish. We've been writing for ten years. Uh, <laughs> well, I, I won't hold you to it, but uh, who knows when know. that'll see the light of day? Yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah, you've got this uh, beautiful introduction by Keegan Chandler. Uh, mm-hmm. What is that? 30, 34 pages, thirty-two pages, and then we've got the uh, the title page from the original. It's uh, introducing the the work of of Thomas Imlin, and you guys have updated the language, so we're not dealing with seventeenth, yeah. early eighteenth century English, which for many of us is just whew, pretty difficult to wade through. Yeah, that's right. It's it's just too hard to read, especially just for the, an average person or even a person with a university degree. It's still very hard to read. So you, Keegan Chandler and I went through every single sentence of it and just made it up to modern standards. You know, if a word didn't mean the same thing anymore, we would go and find a better word that you would understand. So I like it. I mean, I was used to reading stuff from that era. I was like, oh, this is pretty easy. It's so It's very plain spoken. But then when you realize... Oh, wait a second, but it's in the English of 1702. If, if we're going to have people read this, it needs to be in their language. Yeah. So that's what we did. Yeah. The uh, book is, is full of these really nice, elaborate footnotes. Could you talk mm-hmm. about that a little bit? Uh, were these original to the author, or you guys added these in as the editors? Let's see. The scripture references were mostly from the Complete Works, Volume 1 of Emlyn's writings that was put together by his son. I think if I remember right, it was 1746. So the scripture references are almost all his. Mm -hmm. Most of the other references are ours. And uh, we just felt like we could add some value by chasing down some of these now obscure um, historical sources that he's mentioning. He's mentioning some very interesting people. He's frequently drawing some points from other um, non-Calvinist Protestants and occasionally even from the Calvinist ones. So it, it brought out the history nerd in both Keegan and I. Yeah. So yeah, we, we thought we thought we could add some value to it that way. Yeah. He actually, even though he's very plain spoken, he'll make very deep points about, you know, why two natures incarnation theory really doesn't help anything. And sometimes a little footnote just really helps you to see the sting of it. Yeah. He's really a very thoughtful and smart person. Not a high-class theologian professor type, but a very, um, you know, somebody who's just packed with common sense and who really takes Scripture seriously. 
Yeah. I appreciated this uh, statement on page 48. Our adversaries will gain nothing by proof texts in which the title of God is given to Christ. Mm-hmm. Uh, boy, that just sounds so relevant. You hear about that today where somebody will go to Romans 9.5 or Titus 2.13 or even John 20.28 20, and say, oh, look, the New Testament applies the word God to Christ. And then uh, Emlyn goes on and says, since that may be, and yet it will not prove him to be the supreme and independent God, but only one who is inhabited and commissioned and enabled by him who is so. And that's yep. that's our classic argument for agency that Jesus represents mm-hmm. God, and therefore, uh, you know, if he is called God, that doesn't mean he's the supreme God. You know, that's a, a very important distinction. And uh, I tell you, I've heard Trinitarian apologists falsely accuse uh, myself and others of inventing this new way of thinking about who Jesus is, and uh, that this is ad hoc and just non-convincing, uh, unconvincing defense. Uh, and yet here we have it, 1702, right? Uh, yep. And, yep. you know, it's not like he was really innovating either. You, we have uh, the Sassanians before him in the, in the 1500s as well. So, Yeah, that's right. And he had read some of the controversial liter- literature from the 1690s amongst different kinds of Trinitarians and Unitarians. And he wasn't a patristics nerd himself, um, but at some point he did meet and no doubt discuss all of these things with uh, Sir Isaac Newton. Yes, that Isaac Newton, uh, who was into patristics and who held similar views about the word God and how that functions. Uh, and also the uh, the well-known intellectual um, Samuel Clark. Mm-hmm. So they were they were all in London at the same time. I'm not sure if he how much he interacted with them before that book, but certainly after that book was published, he would have known both of those. And, they, and he would have been told that you know, the view that the one true God just is the Father alone, is Jesus divine? Well, maybe in some sense, but not the same sense that the one true God is divine. They would have told him that, yeah, that was a common patristic view before, you know, basically 381 and after. Yeah. What sort of audience would you say this book is best meant for? It's really great for Unitarian Christians, to just for the light it shows sheds on the New Testament— and for this just, you know, godly example of just confessing truth despite the consequences and doing it in a Christ-like fashion. So I think it's maybe best for that person, but I think even for a person who doesn't quite know what they think about all of this, like I said, it's so carefully reasoned and plain spoken. I think you'll find a lot of food for thought in this book. So if you think if you think it's obvious that, hey, obviously Jesus is divine in the fullest possible sense, I think if you read this book, you'll you'll come away thinking, well, that's not right. Because mm-hmm. he kind of systematically goes after it, and he shows that the biblical authors portray Jesus as having limitations, and they just don't ever give you any warning about thinking, well, these limitations only pertain to his human nature, but they don't pertain to his divine nature and things like that. So... I mean, like you said, it's a short book, so it's not like uh, you're going to get bogged down and quit halfway through. It's really a very engaging book, I think, the way it moves along. Okay. And how can people get a copy of it? It's published on Amazon, which happily is available in very many countries now. Um, So I'm sure you can get it in uh, the EU, in Australia. I think you can get it in Japan and India. 
obviously in America, Canada, Mexico. And uh, there's an electronic version, too, if you're an ebook person. Very good. And uh, this is published by the Unitarian Christian Alliance under its imprint, Theophilus Press, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So talk to us a little bit about Theophilus Press and you know what, what the vision is there and a little bit about what is next for Theophilus Press. The vision of it is to be able to put out books that are the same quality as an academic press would put out, like the University of Chicago Press or Oxford University Press or Cambridge University Press. So um, we're shooting for a really high level of editing and for a really high level of content. We have plenty of uh, Unitarian books out there, particularly what I call whistleblower books. And uh, there's lots of good ones. You know, it's, it's just a Bible-oriented Christian. Typically, they start out Trinitarian, then they do a thorough investigation over many years, and they're like, hey, guys, the Trinity's not in the Bible. Guess what? Unfortunately, it's easy for academic types to just blow this off because they, they make this value judgment, you know, based on how the book looks or what the name on the press is. This is a modern phenomenon. You know, in Emlyn's day, if you wrote a book, you then paid the printer to print it. This, this idea of publishers and publishers adding prestige to books and the assumption that a book is no good unless it's, it's come from a big publisher. These are very modern developments, late 1800s to the present. We're trying to publish books that PhDs and PhD students will look at this and say, hang on a second, this is interesting. This is really high quality. This is something that's worth arguing with. We're kind of trying to hit the high end of, of the, the snootier end of the book market, in a sense. <laughs> Uh, because there's, you know, self-publishing, thank God, is very easy. I've done it myself, my book, What is the Trinity? Um, it's it's great. It's it's hard to do it, you know, really, really well, but it kind of equalizes, uh, it levels the playing field and, you know, removes barriers to entry. Um, and yet, the more educated you are, the more snooty you are about what sort of things you'll take seriously. And when you see a book is self-published... I've I've had um, PhDs in philosophy who specialize in philosophy of religion look at my What is the Trinity book, and they're like, yeah, this is really good. Like, everybody should look at this, even if you're not a Unitarian, you know. What he does here is it's very helpful. But that's that's unusual, right? Most most of them, hey, this isn't published by Oxford University Press. Most good philosophy books are. Why would I care about this mangy self-published book? That's what we're trying to do. Uh, Keegan and I spent, goodness, parts of a year, I guess, maybe about a year off and on working on the Emlyn book. And And it was already written. Yeah. (laughs) But we had to modernize it, do all the research to add all those footnotes. And then we had to um, come up with a contemporary house style for Theophilus Press that would be as good looking as a book published by, say, Oxford University Press. And, you know, editing is really hard. <laughs> I, my hat's off to editors because to get a book 99.9% typo-free, just that is super hard. But to also have it laid out, you know, according to modern standards, we're basically going with contemporary North American standards as embodied in the, the Chicago Manual of Style. But still, there's a lot of decisions to make. Anyway, that's what we're trying to do. 
our books aren't for everybody, but we are trying to go after a segment of the book buying and reading market that we haven't as uh, American Unitarian Christians really cracked into that much yet. So Very good. Very good. Um, the next thing we, we have up, we're really excited about. We really think it's an important monograph. It's about the ancient mainstream Christians that historians in modern times called dynamic monarchians and which are basically now what we call biblical Unitarians. So these are people who are accused in ancient times of saying that Jesus is a mere man, you know, who didn't exist before his, his miraculous conception. Why this is such an amazing book is um, all the material written by these Christians, some of whom were, were fairly learned people and uh, were very careful about biblical interpretation and even doing some critical study to find out exactly what the correct biblical text was. All of these amazing works have been lost. And so what we have are just a handful of hostile discussions by usually Logos theorists, people like Hippolytus and uh, Origen, Tertullian, and people in that era. And it's really hard to figure out what these Christians were really up to. But basically, they were mainstream Christians who accepted the same books of the Bible as other Christians did. And yet they didn't believe that Jesus is God or that he has a divine nature in that sense. And they didn't even believe in preexistence in most cases. But it takes a PhD who is studied with a famous church historian like Thomas Gaston, the author. It takes someone with that level of skills to write a book on such a hard historical subject as this. And so we're really excited about it. It's a scholarly monograph. We think it'll take the wind out of the sails of apologists and other theologians and scholars who say, come on guys, whoever in the history of the church ever held anything like this. Gaston very carefully lays out a case that this view was early and widespread and indeed maybe even the earliest Christology that mainstream Christians held, which is what we are told some of these ancient dynamic monarchians said. They said that the Logos theory interpretation where God creates the world through Jesus, this is how people usually read John 1, sort of. They said, hey, that's a new thing. Or these modalists who collapse God and Jesus, that's a new thing. No, I mean, the one, the one God is the Father. Jesus is a man in whom the word of God dwelled and who was empowered by God to do all the amazing things that he did. So we're really, uh, really excited about that book. It's a lot of work because it's based on hundreds of sources, uh, whether contemporary or ancient, and uh, deals with what Bible texts were they primarily basing their case on, how did they look at the fourth gospel, and uh, lots of interesting things like that. So that'll be our second book. Mm-hmm. Do you think that'll be out next year? We're hoping and praying we can get it out by the end of 2021, but we'll oh, see. this year? Yeah, we'll wow. see. After the conference, we're going to see if we can finish it. Um, That's optimistic. Yeah, it is. But with the Emlyn book, you know, we found we had to read several more drafts than we were planning on to get all of the bugs out of it. And uh, we probably didn't get 100%, but we came very close. And a bigger, more complicated book like that will be, will be more difficult. But mm-hmm. well, yeah, we're really looking forward to that. 
let me ask you this, uh, as far as other people, other authors that would like to be published by Theophilus Press, do you have any way for them to get in touch or any, do you accept submissions or are you content to just uh, figure out who or who should be the authors in the future and then reach out to them directly? There are, there is a, um, an email I believe, and maybe a contact form too on the Theophilus Press website, so people can contact us like that. We're open to submissions, but I would caution people that, for one thing, this is a very small volunteer effort, and we can't publish much just based on the manpower we have now. For another thing, a lot of just people who will write books on this, who will write whistleblower books in particular— they're not aiming at the same market that we're kind of focusing on. So self-publishing might be better or some of the other Unitarian groups out there that are publishing books might be a better fit. Mm -hmm. We can make a promise that we will quickly read submissions and things like that. Uh We probably have a third one in the queue, which will be some of my previously unpublished essays and presentations. And after that, we don't know what we're going to do but now you're probably talking deep into next year. Right. If we ever get more more manpower, maybe we can we can do more. But right now it's just a, a three-member publishing committee of the UCA. Okay. All right. Well, let's go back to talking about the conference. The conference is about a month away, less than a mm-hmm. month now. Yep. Uh, we've got nearly 100 people signed up and room for some more people to come. Let's let's talk about why someone should come to the UCA conference. What what are they going to get out of it? I've always been a humongous fan of conferences. I've gone <laughs> to philosophy conferences and theology conferences and uh, I am always excited to meet people. And in the way that we laid out this conference, we've left ample time for people to talk and get to know one another. So we've got two two hours scheduled for the lunches and dinner times and some break times in between the sessions. We tried not to overschedule everything, so you're just running around all the time. You know, we want you to sit with different people every meal and just, you know, hear some of their story and, you know, make some connections and some friendships or renew older friendships. A lot of people I know are going to show up and be extremely excited to meet Mark Kane. Oh, yeah. Who wouldn't be? And And also his guests, you know, these people who we've heard their stories and are so you know, interested in them now. And so kind of grateful for their testimony. Uh, You know, I'm looking forward to meeting some of these people that I haven't met. So meeting people is a big part of it. Another part that I mentioned is just sort of um, finding out what some other Unitarian groups are doing. You know, is there something I might want to be involved in? Is there something I need to be able to tell people about? Something I should add to my schedule? Maybe I want to talk about some of these differences with them in a friendly manner whilst scarfing down a burger or at lunch or, you know, it's all good. And it's a different, it's a different crowd than you're going to, you're going to find elsewhere. And then obviously part of the appeal is the presentations and we're really excited about the presentations. We think that it's really going to be valuable content in terms of understanding the Bible, the history of Christian theology, and just kind of Unitarian theology and Christology so uh, we have Dr. Stephen Snobelin from Canada, uh, from University of King's College in Halifax, Nova Scotia, and he's going to be telling us about a really interesting 
early modern era whistleblower named Paul Best, who was also thrown in jail, like Thomas Emlyn, for being a blasphemer or a heretic. Uh, We have Keegan Chandler, who a lot of people know him from his blog and his excellent books, The God of Jesus and Constantine and the Divine Mind. And uh, he's going to be talking about um, this idea of early high Christology, which is all the rage in New Testament studies, you know, asking some critical questions about that, basically. Pastor Sean Finnegan, the one, the only, uh, is going to be presenting. And um, my, your topic is slipping my mind right now. Subordinationism. Subordinationism. Mm-hmm. Uh, historical, mainly, or, or both biblical. historical and contemporary? Yeah. Uh, primarily uh, just uh, the biblical case for mm-hmm. uh, the subordination of the Son to the Father, mm-hmm. and uh, dealing with the uh, the theological implications of that biblical evidence. I'm going to be interacting with scholarship uh, that um, would want to affirm the Trinity and the subordination, the eternal subordination of the Father and the Son at the same time, mm-hmm. and uh, basically in an effort to to show that that is not a possible landing place, you know, to, to affirm the Trinity and subordination, uh, I think is, is highly problematic. I think as soon as you recognize subordination, you don't have a full-blown Trinity theory anymore, um, at least not mm-hmm. the way that they're doing it. <laughs> yeah, and, fun- and just waving your hands and intoning the phrase functional subordination isn't enough? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I'm dealing with the economic trinity mm-hmm. versus the imminent trinity and how, mm-hmm. you know, the incarnation theory of, oh, well, the sun is just subordinate qua, you know, human nature during his incarnation, but before that they were co-equal and after that they're co-equal, this whole like toned down kenosis theory that still lingers on among Trinitarian authors, so... I'm going to be interacting with that. I mean, my 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 case is primarily, or I don't want to say primarily. Well, it's first of all, it's biblical, and then secondarily, it's logical, looking at the theology and how how, how to synthesize the biblical data in a mm-hmm. way that makes sense. So that's mm-hmm. kind of where I'm headed. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Yeah. No, that sounds like you're breaking some new ground there. That's really going to be worthwhile. Uh, another speaker is the amazing Patrick Navas, who lives in Southern California, and he wrote a really uh, superior whistleblower book called Divine Truth or Human Tradition. And I think when he wrote it, he wasn't too sure about what he thought about the preexistence issue, uh, and he's going to be talking about the kind of Unitarians who believe in the preexistence of Christ and those who are dead against that, like myself. And, you know, is this a difference that we can tolerate? That's kind of his topic. Uh, then we have Bill Schlegel, who uh, formerly was a, uh instructor at the Israel Extension of uh, the Master's University, founded by John MacArthur, and uh, author of the Satellite Bible Atlas and host of the One God Report podcast. He's going to have a new presentation for us. Uh, Dr. Jerry Weirwill. Uh, who works with uh, Spirit and Truth, and as one of the uh, editors of the Revised English Version, this really neat um, Unitarian version with a lot of commentary in the notes. So he'll be presenting as well. And then I will be giving a big presentation on the opening night too. So that's our lineup. We think it's really worthwhile. 
Very good. Uh, and could you just share a little bit about your presentation? I know you're going to be tackling John 1. Mm-hmm. What are you going to be talking about? What do you hope to contribute on that discussion? I mean, if there's one passage that's been discussed ad nauseum, it's it's John 1. Uh, what, what do you have to say to us? Yeah, John 1 is probably the jewel in what I call, it's the crown jewel in the canon within the canon. This little handful of text you're supposed to appeal to, which just obviously require Trinity and Incarnation. This is the absolute number one favorite text. Every Unitarian Christian ever, I think, has been immediately confronted with, well, what about John 1? Mm-hmm. Because people think it's just this home run, you know, basically for the Trinity side or the deity of Christ side. And uh, I think that's really quite upside down. Um, so my presentation will be called what John 1 meant, as in what could this have meant to the author and to his original audience? If you look in very learned commentaries today, people just cannot get over thinking that this is a wonderful anticipation of the idea of two who are fully divine and basically two persons within the one true God. But these are later ideas. So what would somebody in the year 90 have thought? that this, all of this meant. Mm -hmm. And the only way that you can figure out how they would have taken it is not by looking at Athanasius or the creed from Constantinople in 381 or something that Augustine wrote. You have to look at what came before. What was it that they would have been reading, which would have made this whole prologue intelligible to them. And uh, I think there's a whole large range of recent scholarship which is talking about wisdom literature and personifications of divine wisdom, which really illuminates the whole thing. I I will talk about difficulties for Trinitarian and other sorts of readings of this text, but the main thing I want to do is to lay out what it meant in light of earlier writings. And it seems to me that most or all of the ideas or the themes that are in the prologue, actually have earlier precedent. And so they could have pieced it together. It would flow in a way that made sense to them. And, you know, just very briefly, it's about God's eternal word by which he made all things. And uh, this is what's kind of expressed to the highest extent in the man Jesus. I think that's what it means when it says the word became flesh. Mm. And there's even precedent in earlier wisdom literature for what you could call a non-literal incarnation, you know, where God's, God's eternal wisdom comes down and becomes embooked in the Torah. Not literally. I mean, God did, God's wisdom didn't take on, you know, parchment. Yeah. Didn't hypostatically unite itself to a, a, a parchment with ink on it. But it's a, it's a non-literal coming. So I'm trying to show the, the logic of the passage, how it flows, and what it could have meant to the original readers in light of earlier writings, both in the Bible and between the Old and New Testaments. Yeah, what I what I like so much about that approach is that it really does the opposite of what we've seen so much. Over and over, we're told what John 1 isn't saying. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's not saying the Trinity. It's not saying that Jesus is deity. It's not saying pre-existence, etc. But 
what Unitarians fail to do so often is to say, well, what is it saying? Yeah. You have to give a positive understanding, not just a negative. So I really like that you're you're going to be doing that and exploring that. Yeah, and I, I, I probably won't get into the history much, but the history is really illuminating on this. Maybe another time I'll go more into that, because if you're going to tell me that this passage is obviously about the multipersonal God, if that were obvious, you would see that from the earliest times. Obvious implications are drawn immediately by competent readers. Okay, but you don't see that. What you see instead are Logos theorists in the late 100s and into the 200s and on who think that it's about God and also this lesser God, this lesser divine being. So there's those guys. Some people thought that. Some people thought it was collapsing the Father and Son. So it says the Word was God. They think it means the Son was the Father. You've got a son father, they're the ancient modalists. Some people thought that, and that's crazy, but people have been confusing God and Jesus for a long time. Mm-hmm. But then we know there were people like the dynamic monarchians who I mentioned before who accepted John and who just thought that the word was not a being in addition to God. It's something more akin to God's wisdom or God's spirit and something which God can put in a man and something by which God can act in creation. It's neither God himself exactly, or nor is it a different divine being. Mm-hmm. It's just a, basically a personification of a divine attribute. Yeah. So we know this. So the idea that this is somehow obviously a Trinitarian proof, it's just, it's upside down. It disregards the history. I guess why people think it is because if you crack open a study Bible or most learned commentaries, they do not care to go into the history of interpretations. Right. And it's not just ancient, it's modern as well. Sir uh, Isaac Newton had a friend who basically came to the same conclusion about John 1. The English Unitarian Theophilus Lindsay had a view of John 1 that's very similar to mine. Some early American Unitarians had views that are very very similar. It's occurred to all kinds of people, even the famous, a uh, famous contemporary scholar of the Jewish Bible. Um, when he looks at the prologue, he's like, yeah, I don't know about this incarnation thing in verse 14, but at least up until then, like this is something that any Jew could have agreed with in that time. Really? Yeah. I, th- I think he's right about that actually. Hmm. So you can read it as consistent with the other three gospels. And that's pretty important, I think. Yeah. So if somebody wants to watch or listen to this presentation of yours or the others that you mentioned, they can come to the conference in October. You can sign up at UnitarianChristianAlliance.org, O-R-G. There are still spots available, but uh, it's not going to be available live webcast. Uh, so, That's right. Um, I know we do have plans to put these things out later in the year, once they're professionally edited, either come to the conference or you're just going to have to wait, right? I mean, that's pretty much what we decided yeah, for that's, all this. That's right. Yeah, the board of the UCA decided that a good strategy would be to release the conference presentations over the course of the year and to really spend the time and money it takes to make them look television quality, basically. Yeah. Uh, so that these will be something that will serve people for a long time. Um, so we're not doing live streaming. Hopefully we'll get more people out next time. 
but you're really going to like this stuff when you see it because uh, people are really bringing their their A game to this. Yeah. yeah. Actually, I was planning on bringing my B game, but now that you said that, <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to re- take it up a notch, but uh, Not all even right. your A minus game, Finnegan. <laughs> yeah. Got to be the A it's or the A plus. Got to be A or game. A plus. I don't know if I can guarantee an A plus, <laughs> but I'll do my best. Um, you know, so I think uh, that's about all we have time for today. Uh, just by way of closing, is there anything else you'd like to share? Maybe talk about your website, your podcast, where people can follow you. What I've been working on the last couple of months is uh, a podcast. I think it will have just come out when you release this episode. Um, podcast. Trinity's podcast 334, Who Do You Say I Am? And this is yet another approach to the New Testament that absolutely cannot be accused of assuming Unitarianism. So it just says, what would you expect if they thought Jesus was God only? What would you think if they thought he was man only? And what would you expect to find in the New Testament if they thought that he's a God-man? And you're comparing those three competing hypotheses with what you actually see and don't see in the New Testament. And I think it's a really powerful argument for a Unitarian view of Jesus. So I'm excited about that. I worked really hard on it. Um, it's also a video on uh, 21st Century Reformation online, mm-hmm. 21stcr.org. Right. And people can follow you at trinities.org. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So also, I'm an, I'm annoying people on uh, Instagram and TikTok these days. So yeah, there will there will be no twerking involved. <laughs> but if you want to see me uh, giving little thirty second lectures on the Bible and the history of Christian theology, you can look for me on those. Yeah, I think half the audience right there just was just like, oh, and the other half was like, thank God, I don't want to see Dale twerk. <laughs> no, you don't want to see me dancing in any form. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, you can follow Dale on Instagram, uh, TikTok, uh, but your your bread and butter is Twitter, right? What's your username for Twitter? I think it's just at Dale Tuggy. Okay, Dale Tuggy. Yeah, and, uh, I, I, I guess I prefer Twitter to the other social media. It's good for yeah. opinionated people who can compose short sentences. Yeah, you're a power user on Twitter, for sure. And uh, you've got the YouTube, Trinities, and the podcast. You can uh, find that in Apple Podcasts or in Spotify or whatever you use. Mm-hmm. And uh, so thanks so much for talking with me today, Dale. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Sean. Keep up the great work. Love Restitutio. Well, this concludes our interview together. I hope you can make it to the conference. If the registration is still online, that is, if you're listening to this uh, the week that it comes out, it still is online and probably will be for uh, another week or two. I'm not really sure exactly when the cutoff is for catering, but you can find that information at UnitarianChristianAlliance.org. You can follow Dale. I've got all the links in the show notes for the episode for his website for Twitter, for Instagram, and for TikTok. Man, how many of you are TikTok fans? Uh, If you are, look up at Dale underscore Tuggy and see what you think uh, about what he's doing with that medium. Kind of an interesting thought to have an analytic theologian on TikTok. But uh, take a look at that. If you'd like to ask questions or leave any comments, as always, come on to restitutio.org and find episode 410, Thomas Emlin and the Unitarian Christian Alliance Conference, and would love to hear your feedback. Also, would be interesting to hear your feedback about the book. I know a number of you have already gotten this book and read it, 
and we'll be interested to hear what you have to, to say about that on uh, in the comments as well. In addition, just wanted to let you know that I'm going to be teaching a new class called One God Overall, where I build out a biblical understanding of who God is and who Christ is, and uh, delve a little bit into the historical record towards the tail end of it. And this is a class that's going to be available starting next week. Uh, You can watch it live online on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern Time at lhim.org. That stands for Living Hope International Ministries, lhim.org, live webcast. Uh, Or I will also be putting that out here on Restitutio, so uh, so hopefully that is a class that will be very helpful to you uh, in the sense that, you know, I think a lot of the material will be, will be old hat for many of you, but I'm also looking to cover commonly misunderstood verses as we go through and other, other uh, points of interest. And really the class is also with the Trinitarian in mind, your Trinitarian friend, your Trinitarian neighbor that maybe curious about what you believe, even if maybe they're not even willing to change their beliefs, but they want to understand you as a biblical Unitarian, uh, this class can be very helpful to give a thorough overview. Right now, I'm thinking it's going to be 14 class lectures, probably between 30 and 45 minutes each. Uh, We'll have to wait and see what ends up being the case, and uh, I'm hoping that I can put this out on YouTube as well as audio, so stay tuned for that. We'll give you more information about that next week. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for listening here to the end. If you'd like to support this ministry, you can do that at restitudio.org. Thanks so much to all of you who are supporting this ministry already. It helps a lot. We'll catch you next week, and remember, the truth has nothing to fear.